Today's episode of the Plants Are People 2 podcast is brought to you by the new mobile iPhone. From Yeah Right Productions, we join you. We use the new app to answer the age-old question. Do plants exist in the twilight zone? We used the new app and after a tedious amount of time, eventually contacted Broad Serling who had this to say. Actually, plants are not able to grow in the twilight zone. As you probably know, sunlight is a vital ingredient needed in the process of growing a plant. Unfortunately, there is very little sunlight penetrating through to the twilight zone, so plants are not able to grow down there. Therefore, photosynthesis cannot occur either. Photosynthesis is the process by which plants use the sunlight to make their own food. Creatures that live in the twilight zone also have to adapt to living without much sunlight, but they are mostly bioluminescent creatures, so it is possible for them to live. Download the Ouija and you app today and ask unneeded questions to non-existent people. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Plants Are People 2 podcast. Uh, the intro today, a little bit of the Twilight Zone. Um, I think that was actually a real quote from Rod Serling about, uh, I think somebody actually mailed in a question about plants growing in the Twilight Zone, and if they did. So that was kind of a special thing to include. And then the other one is... Uh, band called Piebald for a little snippet of the intro there. Song called Grace Kelly with Wings. Got to see them last month uh, with Lena down in Boston right before New Year's, which, you know, a lot of stuff got shut down on New Year's, so we felt pretty lucky to be able to go to that show. Nice hometown show with a really good band. Um, it was probably, it's up there in terms of one of the best shows I've seen recently and I haven't seen a lot of shows recently but thinking about that long term um it probably was one of the better shows I've seen uh of all time so if you haven't checked out Piebald uh go over to their website check them out they are pretty good but today we have a interview with Rob Kretz from Prairie Moon Nursery um talking about a lot of different things uh check the description um if you want to know more and i'm going to turn it over to him and yeah i hope you guys enjoy thanks for listening okay so my name is rob kretz and i do sales and consulting with prairie moon um so basically i'm talking on the phone with folks all day and um kind of teaching them maybe how to go about converting their lawn into a prairie or 
I'm helping them sort of navigate our website and pick out the right plants. Um, also, I do like custom seed mixes, so I do seed mix design. Um, we've got a nifty software that helps with that. Um, and uh, let's see, other other just like miscellaneous customer service type things as well, it's processing orders and taking people's orders over the phone, and and uh, that's pretty much pretty much it. And um, there are some things there that I want to ask you questions on in a little bit, but sure. And so, um, can you tell me a little bit about Prairie Moon Nursery and yep, maybe absolutely. a few things that make it different from other seed companies? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Prairie Moon sells wild type plants and seed native to North America um, for restoration and home gardening. Um, so most of our business, I would say, or the majority of businesses is selling seeds for restoration projects. Um, but we also have grown recently into the home gardening market and we do sell live plants as well and in potted plants as well as bare root plants to home gardeners. Um, we are located in Winona, Minnesota. Maybe everyone out there is a liar, but I'd rather be fucking in it. Southeast Minnesota in um, the Driftless area, which is um, kind of a small region in the Midwest that has been untouched by glaciers. So kind of stark topography compared to like the flat rolling hills of, uh, of the rest of the Midwest. I'm really interested in this lawn to prairie idea, which I think mm-hmm. um, we'll get into later. But so the the seed, tell me about the seed mix design software. Uh, so that's basically just like, it's like um, Microsoft Access product that basically has all of our seed inventory in it and sort of, um, recommended seeding rates for each species based on um, our experiences as well as the experience of the sort of restoration industry. So kind of helps you make decisions about how much of each species to put in a mix as well as like how much species we have on hand. And are those, uh, you know, the parameters of that, the algorithm that it's using, is that based on like uh, soil type and amount of water in a year precipitation no so that's kind of on us uh, on the on us to figure that stuff out um in terms of like what plants are going to be appropriate um in a given planting i mean fortunately we have our own website is a great resource to use for that with native range maps for each of the species um sun and soil moisture preferences things like that um so in general, it's just a matter of um, looking up, researching sort of plants that that would go well in the planting, um, getting feedback from the customer that we're creating it for in terms of what they'd like to see in the planting. Um, oftentimes, you know, we're we're doing the custom mix, but it is really designed by someone else, um, basically, and we're basically putting it together for them and filling it. Um, but yeah, a lot of, 
you get you get better at it with time, just knowing what what plants are going to be appropriate, and and you know when you're doing it every day, you get, yeah, yeah. you know as soon as somebody says like you know I've got a, a dry soil, I'm in Kansas or something, you know you kind of have an idea, a vague idea maybe in your mind of what kind of plants you can use, but then sure. you can always just like go to our website and filter, like we've got a great filter function, so you can click dry soils native to Kansas, and you get a whole list of plants to choose oh. from, and then. Yeah. And so this, the uh, the other thing that you mentioned was wild type seeds. I was wondering if you would just explain, mm-hmm. um, you know, what that means for yep. the listeners. Yeah. So um, we don't carry or sell any cultivars. Um, so no breeding or selecting for specific traits of the plants has gone into like the plants that, that we sell and produce. Um, we try to capture the genetic variability of wild populations, um, which is pretty unique in the in the gardening realm and the nursery realm. Um, we get a lot of get a lot of customers who who request native ours or native cultivars, and uh, we say sorry, uh, that's not something we carry. Um, is, but, is that a word that's being used, native ours? Native ours, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> trendy word. I have uh, basically an, an, a species that's native to North America, but it has been um, cultivated and, and bred for specific traits. And they're, yeah, they're they're pretty popular, um, but they they fail to really meet our objective of preserving genetic diversity. And so that's like Henstamin and what Dicentra probably. Bleeding yeah, hearts. yeah. I mean, there's lots of them. Even like a lot of the grasses too. Big blue stem. You'll get varieties that have really showy, you know, purple stems, things like that. So how can you, you know, when you get a, I guess, the story of why I came to Prairie Moon Nursery, um, I was looking for native seeds for a pollinator meadow mm-hmm. for a client that I have. And, you know, I was, in my mind, I was going to get, like, the perfect bag of seed with all of these varieties of um, plants that would be good for all kinds of different insects and butterflies and birds and everything else. Um, And I didn't, you know, when I started looking through the the list of what was included in that, some things I didn't recognize and I would look them up and then they're not native to where I live exactly. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then I started, I went through the Prairie Moon website and I found that I could basically mix and match my own, you know, my own magical bag of seed that I originally thought I was going to be looking for. Um, and I could like pull in all those cool varieties that I wanted of native plants. So I could really like, spread out my, I could have something always in flower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I came to that, you know, your particular um, website. And so that's why I reached out to talk to you guys about uh, native plants because it seemed like you guys were doing it in the right way. And so the, the wild type seed, you know, that, you know, the other way that I could have, done this was I could have like collected my own seed, you know, from mm-hmm. other sites that I was at. 
Yep. Um, but you know, if I wanted to do that next year, that would be really hard. And the amount of seed that I need, which, you know, maybe that's something to touch on briefly. Is that like, um, does it depend on different parameters, like how much seed I I use in a, at a particular site? Like, let's say it was just an acre. Could that poundage vary? So how how you're asking like how do you know how much seed you need for for a planting? Yeah. Yeah, so um generally we kind of go by seeds per square foot is the basic hmm. measure that we're using. Um and we try to keep it to about 100 like so I guess it it also depends on the diversity of the planting as well. So for a diverse prairie seed mix we try to keep it um at least at 100 seeds per square foot um and you'll find if you look at sort of like some you know government restorations things like that um they might keep it lower from for a cost per um, from a cost perspective they'll keep it around like 30 or 40 seeds per square foot um but when you have those higher seed counts it just helps um to keep weeds out during the establishment phase um because you know obviously if you if you sort of clear the site of vegetation you've got bare soil you're planting on uh, the more seeds per square foot you have in your native seed mix the more things that are seedlings that are germinating and competing against those weeds early on in the establishment phase um you're going to have much more success right so yeah, the that's kind of the basic measure we use is seeds per square foot. And then once you get into like, well, how much of each species do I need? Um, that's going to be a, a lot of that has been sort of determined through observations of the restoration community through the years. Um, there's also some basic principles like a larger seed, you're going to need fewer per square foot. Um, because they've got those energy reserves in there, they'll you know they'll pop up more reliably and 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 like produce healthier, bigger seedlings more often. And those mm -hmm. smaller, you know, the powdery small seeds, um, you can think about it like the plant went for a, a quantity over quality um, approach to their seed production, and so basically those not as many of those seeds are going to survive. So you'd you'd need you'd want more per seeds per square foot of of those smaller seeds um have you found that you know sometimes when i grow i grow a lot of seeds every start them every spring and you know some of them i guess you could direct sow would be the right terminology right just like sow them into the garden or the the place you want to mm -hmm. grow them in mm -hmm. Um, the other option is you start them inside in pots and like, you know, seed starts. Right. Now, are there, you know, are there seeds that are, am I thinking about that wrong? Like, could you, could I just like direct sow, uh, after pre-treatment with any seed species and, and have that work or are, are there times when you're, growing them as starts and then planting them out there because that's 
the survival rate is just, you know, a hundred times better or something. Mm. Um, yeah, I would say um, we always recommend to just direct sow outside, um, you know, particularly in the fall, because a lot of seeds require at least one winter uh, mm -hmm. stratification period before it'll germinate. But it's always going to be probably easiest to just sow it onto bare soil in conditions that the plant will do well in, um, like the proper sun exposure and proper soil moisture, um, and let nature do the rest. Um, but obviously there's there's some advantages to to starting out in pots as well if if the you know if your time and your budget allows for it um you can just you can ensure that a particular species is going to um you know get established in the in the restoration because sometimes you know the plants kind of choose the winners and you, like the goal is just to throw some seed out there and let the plants figure it out Whereas yeah. if you're looking for a particular species, you might want to start from pots just to make sure that you're getting some successfully established. And then, um, you know, it's, then you've got to basically um, stratify the seeds yourself, whether it requires um, cold moist um, yeah. or or some sort of scarification, dehulling. Um, mm -hmm. Start it in pots and then transplant when, you know, when the weather is appropriate in the spring. Um, so do you have an, any idea of like your success rate in doing that direct sow method with, you know, a variety of species? Like, do you think you get 80% germination or higher than that? Um, you know, I, I have no idea what, yeah, like what a, a germination percentage. I guess it has a lot of, with it. a lot of yeah, variables. It's, it's it's extremely variable and and species dependent um you know even like so it's hard because it it's really hard to do anything in terms of like germination percentages in the in the native seed world because the dormancy mechanisms in the seeds mm. are so are so tricky and like unknown there's so much that's not known about them um so like when we're you, like when you assess like the quality of seeds and and do like a, a seed testing that you um to sort of understand how how um how good and how viable that seed a lot of seed is in the in the agricultural community you're looking at germination percentages because mm -hmm. they you know how this what the seed requires in order to germinate and so you just say how much of that you know sprouted but in the native seed world, you're really just looking at viability. So how many, what percentage of these seeds have a viable embryo that could potentially germinate? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, like um, back to your question about like, um, do you like, can you have any idea about like how much of a given species is going to actually germinate in a, when you direct? So, um it's really going to be species dependent. Some species can take, will sit, you, you won't see it in a restoration for several years and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere. Yeah. Um, I know like Culver's root I've heard is one that does that where it's like, you can plant a bunch of, you know, you plant a seed mix and it has a, um, a good amount of Culver's root in there and you won't see it for seven years. And all of a sudden you'll see, you'll see Culver's root everywhere after seven years. So I mean, and then 
Oh yeah. yeah. So like species like like um, certain sedges, um, when we're growing them out in the greenhouse, they'll one year you'll have you'll have like great germination rates, and then the next year you'll use seed from the same lot. You'll do the same procedure, and like none of it will germinate. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. So what would you say for you know just touching on this? Uh, Culver's root for a second. So that where we're in Vermont, where I'm from, that plant is ranked S1, extremely rare and endangered. Hmm. Um, so, you know, and it's, it only occurs in two counties in my state. So that, you know, would you think that that might not be the plant that I would want to try to you know, put into a restoration setting? Um, I guess it depends on your goals. Um, you kind of have to define that for yourself. You might, you might really want it. You know, the thing is, because a plant is found frequently or not frequently, or if it's native to that county or state or not, doesn't really doesn't always determine how well it's going to do in a restoration planting. Hmm. This might be that it wasn't really found there very much for, you know, whatever random reason. Um, but, you know, if you, if you plant it out, it'll grow, it'll, you know, grow super well. Um, so things to consider when you're thinking about planting something extremely rare in, you know, in Vermont, for example, is, um, kind of your own personal values in terms of you might want to consider like do I want to use a seed source that maybe is from the Midwest and plant it out here and and get that genetic um, information sort of crossing with the rare native Vermont culver's root um, or not and you know, depending on who you ask, they, people might have different perspectives about whether that might not be a good thing, or, or you know, maybe it is a good thing. Yeah, I mean that you know, in my mind, um, I would think, and I haven't looked into this uh, plant particularly, but I would guess that it's probably at its northern most range. Is this a common plant around you, in um, Minnesota? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a pretty. Uh, standard tall grass prairie plant, I would say. Um, I'm actually looking at its range map right now, and it's kind of the the center of its range, the bulk of its range looks like it's in the upper Midwest, and then it also dips down into the sort of the southeast and then up into the northeast as well. Yeah, it would be really interesting to, you know, compare the DNA sequence from, like, a Vermont population compared to one of the populations out there and actually see what the difference was. Um, yeah, for sure. I know, I mean, oftentimes there are like, um, you know, phenotypical differences that are easy to spot in some of the, like, the populations that uh, of some native plants that we grow, like, um, I'm trying to think, one of the sylphiums, like a uh, compass plant or something or cut plants, like, um, we have sources from from Illinois, um, and we've got customers in in South Dakota who will grow it and be like amazed at how tall it is because it's the Illinois 
ecotype is, is significantly taller than the South Dakota ecotype of hmm. that plant. Do you know what the the genus name is on that? Um, of which one? Uh, the rosinweed. The the, the cup. Yeah, the there. Yeah, silphium. Silphium. Yeah. Yep. Do you know what the the last the the species oh. name is? And I'm sorry. Oh no problem. So that is. Let's see. Oh, no, these are hard. I, I don't remember them. There's all like, I think cut plant is in, integrifol. Oh, no, perf, perfoliatum. Okay. And then there's like uh, integrifolium and yeah, I don't know. So what's, what's interesting was I was briefly looking to see if I could, you know, find, um, I did find some Vermont-based companies that were selling, uh, you know, what they were calling native seeds. And it had a lot of had a lot of blue stem in it, and it had this silphium, um, but the silphium perfoliatum in in New England is uh, it's listed as non-native, so it looks like it's native up to like Pennsylvania and then New York, New Jersey, and then all of New England is wrapped into a, its non-native zone, but. <clears throat> It wasn't listed as Silphium perfoliatum. It was listed as Silphium trifolia, something like that. Okay. And so I, I didn't find that one. So it's just interesting. Like, again, back to the, the like, native, there, there's such a fine line sometimes between, um, you know, native, non-native, native invasive, uh, escaped plants, and you know, trying to be really ecologically minded with, you know, the restoration or creation or, um, you know, diversification of a meadow, grassland, um, you know, something like that. And, you know, trying to, I guess when I was thinking about it, I was like, what plants do I for sure know are, would diversify this, um, piece of land and create flowers for pollinator habitat throughout the growing season. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, that's, I guess that's why I came back to that, like ad hoc, I want to make my own seed mix, um, you know, based on what I, I decided. And so that it's just interesting that you brought up that silphium because um, I really hadn't, heard of it and so when i when i was looking through the plant list i looked it up and i was like oh that's not <laughs> vermont native seeds except this one's non-native yeah yeah it can be it can be like the more you get into it the like the more confusing and technical mm -hmm. and, and hard it gets to <laughs> to understand what's going on um and i think that's one of the, the super neat things about our our company and the way we operate with feed mixes is like you can do all that research and all that work if you want to. You can tell us exactly what you want and what you don't want, and we'll do it for you. Or you can just give us some parameters and say, "Hey, I want only things that are native to Vermont. I want, you know, a lot of a lot of butterfly and hummingbird species, and I want things that flower throughout the year." And that's all you have to say, and we can work with that and, and give you something that meets those criteria as well. That's cool. So you're you're researching all those species and then, you know, putting together 
a seed mix for that person. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. That sounds like a cool job. It is. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit more about the the wild type seeds. Are you guys? Uh, how does that work? Where do they in come from? Of, yeah, in terms of you harvesting, like how does that? How does your harvesting process work? Sure. Um, so we have sort of a network of, of collectors and growers. We so we grow out a lot of we grow out a lot of seed on Prairie Moon land and land that we rent in the area. Um, so we have production beds, both mixed plantings, which are like essentially restoration, prairie restorations that we collect seed from, as well as like single species beds, just kind of depending on the species. And, um, you know, some, some species don't actually grow very well at all when you try to isolate them and grow them in a single um, species bed. And so, but when, when appropriate, when you can do it, that certainly makes production and collection a lot easier. And um, <clears throat> you don't need as, you know, skilled botanists going out there and identifying and, and determining what species it is, when it's ripe, et cetera. If you've got a single species bed, you can basically, you know, send a crew of interns out there and say, hey, go collect this bed right <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so we do utilize both um, mixed plantings and production beds. We also have a network of, of collectors who, you know, collect on 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 private lands with, that, you know, either they own or they have permission to collect on. Um, that's sort of throughout the, the Midwest. And um, um, we also buy in a fair amount of seed now. So it used to be we actually ran on a, like a consignment um, system where people would basically store their like we would store people's seed for them. They would they would go out and collect on um, private lands. We would store it for them, sell it for them, and then split the profits with them. Hmm. Um, now, I mean, we still do that, but we kind of we don't we don't sort of take on any new consignees. We're we're sort of transitioning more into buying seed now that we're a bigger company. We've got kind of the capital to do that. Um, we 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 buy it in from most most of our seed comes from the upper Midwest. Although we do really try to get um, you know ecotypes from all over if if we know they're going to be popular or needed. Um, we love to have stuff from the north northeast when we can. Um, you know, whenever there's an opportunity to to buy a species we, that we know is going to be used in a lot of restoration projects um, in the Northeast. We love to have Northeast ecotypes. Um, same, same with the Western United States. And so what is, what does that look like? Do you buy the, like, is it pretty clean and everything? It depends. Sometimes it is. And sometimes we have to clean it ourselves. Um, so it just depends who the grower is and if they have the, you know, the capability to do it or not. Um, and so um obviously there's a there's quite a process in in processing the seed um once it's you know oftentimes from you know when you're out in the field collecting it you're basically just using a a, a scythe and and cutting off the top of the plant shoving it yeah. in a bag and moving yeah. on so the quick and dirty have, approach yep yep exactly so you got to dry it out which you know we've got some Basically, it, in the fall, um, Prairie Moon, we we utilize every bit of 
space we have and greenhouses and sheds and everything and to to dry it out seed um and dry out the you know the pods and everything that it's in and then we've got you know hammer mills and sanding mills and things like that to to clean it out oh so, so we yeah we will we will clean other people's seed um as well or you know sometimes they have the power to do that themselves so then they they sell it to us clean when i worked for the wildflower society we we would and it wasn't common seed it was like rte species but we would part of our job was to sit there and clean seeds <laughs> with like yeah. a, ma a magnifying glass and that could be pretty tedious sometimes <laughs> yeah we don't we don't really do that uh not that um detailed where it's somebody sitting with a magnifying glass but uh, so how do you yeah, I'd also how do have some experience doing that with just a little tabletop uh yeah. mill yeah it was like it was borderline torture sometimes <laughs> um how do you guys find your contacts for um like seed from the northeast region for example um people come to us really uh, we get telephone calls saying hey would you be interested in, in this or you know for if for certain projects if you need it for a certain project there are, there are other you know nurseries there are native plant nurseries throughout the country, although some regions don't have many and don't have um, nurseries that are really great for retail or for the home buyer. They're hard, you know, they're more horse wholesale, so they're hard to for really home buyer to access. But you know, we we do have you know that that those connections, and we um, buy seed in when we need it. Yeah, I don't. Do you does Minnesota? I imagine Minnesota has a state nursery. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not. I'm. I actually, I'm a Wisconsinite, so and I oh. live across the. I live across the river in Wisconsin, so I. Uh, I, I would imagine there is some state nursery. You know, the, the DNR has probably got something that they probably grow mostly trees. I would guess. I, I'm assuming. Yeah. Probably what they do. But. Um, cool. Let's uh, let's go on to the next topic we had. Sure. Um, oh, I was going to ask you about what do you think about epigenetics? And I know, mm -hmm. like, I know you said that, you know, you try to source, you know, regionally as much as mm -hmm. you can. But so, mm -hmm. you know, and we were kind of talking about this with the, the Culver's Root. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about like the the wildlife value of let's just say I got Wisconsin seed of this culver's root? Let's let's pretend that the culver's root isn't an endangered plant in Vermont. Yeah. Um, bringing that in and then growing that does that have the same wildlife value that it would in Wisconsin? And um, what are the other components of, you know, the epigenetic question that you think might come into play with doing something like, like you know, sending seeds a thousand miles away? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. um, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's 
fun to think about and I wish there was, you know, more known about it. Um, I know that from, you know, just simple observational experience that the, the plants work, they, they grow successfully, you know, out in, you know, if you, if you take some culver's root seed from Wisconsin and you plant it out in Vermont, it'll grow and, you know, the pollinators will use it, wildlife will use it. Um, so it's, to me, it's like, if you can, if you can get local seed, awesome. But if you can't like, yeah, get what you can. That's kind of my thought about it. Um, I think, I think that it, it's yeah much better than, um, than the alternative of not, um, not planting, but I, I, I am always curious, you know, what may, what might the unintended consequences be? Um, yeah. But we don't, you know, another thing to think about that I like, that I like to think about is like, maybe there's some benefits too, like to, you know, mixing up the gene pool a little bit. Um, I, like there's a concept called like adaptive introgression, which is like you mix the gene pool, you take separate populations and you put them together and they actually, you know, are, are more adaptive to, to change to the changing environment. So like that could be something in, in the face of climate change that actually, you know, could be a good thing. Maybe not always. And, and it's probably contextual. Sometimes it's probably good. And sometimes it's probably bad. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it like that, you know, I'm sure that there would be some people that would get pissed. If, right. You know, we brought, you know, you and me brought Culver's root to, to Vermont yeah. and planted it in every county. Um, but yeah. I mean, what are we really getting hung up on? We're getting hung up on that, like that those specific plants are yeah. there and what, and really what we should be focusing on is the habitat niche and, right. you know, um, the pollinators and everything else that depend on that species. And really we should probably be having it in more places. So the smartest thing to do is try to, you know, really it's like outcrossing mm -hmm. um, by bringing in those, the genetics of that other species that's, you know, or that other region that's obviously doing really well, um, you know, yeah. bringing them in and then trying to, to boost um, that endangered species and not make it endangered anymore. Get it off the list. For sure. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, to me, it's like the more genetic diversity you can get on the landscape, and that means like the more plants you can throw on the landscape and just let evolution play out. Like that just seems to breed resilience in my mind. Yeah, um, that's a good like transition into um, maybe some things that we can do as you know homeowners, landowners, renters with pollinator plants on any size um, piece of property or space that you have and try to boost that, you know, the number of plants that are around. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we talked about like talking about three types of area and I tried to make this as like inclusive as possible. So somebody who might be living in uh you know, a place that has more concrete than yeah. dirt around it, which like that, those places might be 
you know, maybe the most important places to be putting in pollinator plantings. Um, so what do you think about, and, and I know that you said this at the beginning and I, I had put a pin in it to come back to it, but that lawn into prairie idea, um, mm -hmm. the property that I have doesn't, we, I live in on sort of a mountain, so we don't have, you know, flat property is a luxury. And so luckily the flat property next to my house was used as the, uh, leach field for my septic. So uh -huh. I really can't like plant anything there. Um, so, but what we have been doing over the past three or four years is not mowing it at all. So, you know, whoever owned the house before me planted it as a lawn and we let it grow out every summer. And the one thing that I noticed, and you know, the term that we use is bioswale, even though it might not be technically what a bioswale is. Um, but I always like that term. So I apply that to that space that I'm not really doing anything with. And, you know, the, the number of uh, lightning bugs that we see in, in the middle of the summer, just crawling all over the grass and everything that's growing because, you know, everyone else are, around me is mowing their yard to the ground. Right. Um, you know, that alone is, a huge sign to me that that's like the right thing to do because of the amount of insect life that's in there. And like, um, you know, we mow a little path around it so you can walk, but like it's that the value of that is like seen instantaneously. And that's just for me doing nothing. That's from like me being lazy. I don't have to cut my lawn <laughs> and you know, and it's like, it feels like a win-win all over the place. Um, so maybe you could just, you know, talk about what somebody could do in those three situations. We we broke them down into like, uh, you know, someone in a city with a backyard, maybe some backyard space, patio, deck, mm -hmm. um, maybe a common space or a courtyard that, you know, is shared. Or there's like a vacant lot next door that's just soil. Um, the second one was someone with a smaller piece of land, so a third of an acre, up to like something like two acres and then someone with two to 10 acres or more. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe if we could talk about like, you know, maybe I guess they each have different scenarios on the prep work that would need to get done. But so maybe yeah. we can just start with the, the first one and go from there. So I think actually what might be the easiest thing to do is kind of describe the general process. Um, and then sort of talk about maybe what the differences would be um, between smaller and larger sites. Cool. Um, so I'll go ahead and do that. And this is kind of, so what I'll give you is kind of like the prairie moon way. It's like kind of a, I would say it's tried and true, but, and a lot of people will also, you know, use these sort of basic techniques, but you know, there's no one way to do things. And there's so many people out there who have figured out, you know, great ways to accomplish um, the process of turning, you know, a lawn or, or a weed infested area into great habitat. Um, but so the general sort of process that, that we um, subscribe to would be, um, I guess you start with planning um, and basically just figuring out the size of your site and um, the sun exposure, just in sort of general terms, is it getting full sunlight, you know, through a, 
um, you know, six or more hours of sunlight would, we would say is full sun or like sort of in the three to six hours of sun range, you know, maybe there's, you've got some trees on the neighboring property that shade out your spot a little bit, but, um, you know, up directly above you, there's open, open skies, um, or, you know, full shade would be maybe less than three hours of direct sunlight. So, um, figure out this, the sun exposure, um, the soil moisture, which, so soils, you, you don't have to get too intense with like figuring out your soils and like getting a full soil report. Um, you know, most in, in almost all cases, your soil is going to be fine for growing native plants. You really just need to know your soil moisture. So, um, the, the main, the main factor in soil moisture is the texture. So are you, are, are the soil sandy, which is going to be drier? Are they like loamy uh, with a lot of silt or are they clay soils, which tend to hold moisture more? Um, and then there's, you know, s slope and slope aspect plays a role as well. Is it a south facing slope that's going to be baking in the sunlight or is it a north facing slope that's going to remain cool and, and, and thus wet, wetter? Uh, so, um, getting a general idea of your soil moisture, um, we, we in at Prairie Moon we sort of say you know dry soil to us means like almost pure sand almost no organic matter no water retention whatsoever um, that would be dry and then wet soil would be there's standing water almost most of the year it it almost never it like it stays wet all of the year round um, and then medium wet soils would be kind of like it's what it's wet in the spring it's 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 um there's might be some standing water after a heavy rain but it dries out regularly too yeah. um and then um so using that information you basically can determine what kind of seed mix you need um like we've got we've got pre-made mixes for any any of those scenarios um so once you have kind of your your site um staked out you develop your plan um the next the next um step would be to prep your site for planting and in most cases you're not so assuming you don't already have an existing you know prairie or something with high wildlife value you you're basically going to prep it by killing off the existing vegetation um there are various methods for doing this um if if you're not averse to herbicide, herbicide is obviously the easiest, um, but you can avoid it as well. Um, solarization or smothering is an option, especially for small spaces, um, which is essentially laying out like clear plastic or black plastic or cardboard or, you know, really anything that's going to um, smother um, the the underlying vegetation that works great on lawns um are they i love i love that you're you're advocating for killing your lawn right now that's great yeah. oh yeah um, <laughs> but what are the so you know let's want the lawn is one scenario that you're killing mm -hmm. um what is the the other scenario of the the makeup of the plants in that area that you might be getting rid of well if you have like um invasive species or just cool season exotic grasses 
um, like a like an old farm field, for example, um, that's just basically you know cool season grasses like smooth brome, something like that. Mm. Um, that's a pretty common one. Um, or yeah, I guess that, that's pretty much it. If you've got if you've got dealing with a lot of non-native plants, because I mean, if you have about all native plants from the get-go, I mean, uh, you might as well keep it. <laughs> and yeah, and that substitute in a little. You know, you can intercede, add a little diversity here and there. Yeah, like do it in little patches or something. Try to, mm-hmm. you know, I guess what we would see here most of the time in fields like that is um, goldenrod can occupy a lot of that space. He's sure. Pretty, oh, pretty yeah. aggressive. That's another, yeah, that's another one, one of the kind of one of the rare scenarios where you might have a native plant that you want to just wipe out with the like Canada goldenrod. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you've got something that's invasive or just like super aggressive that you, uh, that you want to, you know, add significant diversity and it's beyond sort of like controlling it and keeping it in patches. Um, this is when you would want to, you know, just smother it all or, or solarize it. Um, another method would be to till it um, with repeated tillings. Um, so every time you disturb the soil or till the soil, you're going to bring up a new crop of weed seeds to the surface that are going to germinate. So if you do till the soil, like that's one of the most common mistakes I would say people make is they think that by tilling it, they've prepped the soil. But <laughs> if you till it, you're going you're gonna to want to do that for yeah. at least a full growing season repeatedly. Like till it, let things green up, till it again, let things green up. Because weeds weeds will germinate at different times. Different weeds will germinate at different times of the year too. So like winter annual weeds it tend to germinate in the fall. Um, you know, typical spring annual or summer annual weeds will germinate in the spring so you're going to want to at least do one full growing season of repeated tilling Mm -hmm. um so yeah those are i think some of the just the basic methods of of prepping your site um getting it to sort of bare soil um and and then the the best time to plant a seed mix we say is in the fall or a dormant season planting so once the wet, you know, for the, in this part of the country, that's once the weather has gotten so cold where nothing, none of that seed is going to germinate. Um, so late fall or the winter, you you honestly can't really plant. It, there's not much of a danger of waiting too long. Um, if 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 you wait too long and there's snow on the ground, that's not actually too long at all. You can plant it right in the snow, and the seed will actually work its way into the into the soil over the course of the winter. Um, I always wondered but, that. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how that works, but actually, you know, if you plant it on a sunny day in the, in the snow, um, you'll actually see that, that the sun actually hits that dark colored seed and, and starts to melt it right into the snow before, you know, before the, the end of the day even. That is um, true. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, re- the reason, uh, we talked about it a little bit before, but the reason um, we advocate for fall plantings is because a lot of that seed does have to go through a winter stratification period before it'll germinate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the the planting phase, um, and then management phase is like um, we recommend mowing the f- the full first growing season. 
So if you plant in the in the fall and then you've got the following spring and summer, you'll want to keep the planting mode to um, really uh, anywhere from like four inches to we, so we recommend four to eight inches. Um, part of that is a lot of the of our customers are are you know just home home gardeners and folks who don't really have access to anything to mow with besides like a standard lawnmower which doesn't really go up any higher than four inches so if you if you just have a standard mower keep it mowed to, to about four inches the first growing season uh, at least till sort of late summer early early fall um and that really does two things it it knocks down fast growing weeds which can keep them from going to seed and it can keep them from sort of competing and overshadowing your your little seedlings um and it also um sort of allows your your young prairie plants your seedlings it, when they get those tops cut off uh they they tend to just focus more on root development that first year that's interesting mm-hmm. um yeah do you get like a lot of questions about that when somebody's like, oh, I'm going to spend this money to plant seed and then I'm going to mow it the first year. Uh, I don't even, yeah, we do get calls about the mowing, but like, I guess um, we try not to even give them that chance because it's like, as soon as, as soon as you tell them that you, they should mow it, you got to tell them why they should mow it. And uh, that's, that's the same thing on our website as well. And when we, when we say mow it, we, we explain right away. Like, Here's yeah. why you need to mow it. Uh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense if you're, you know, for the long-term survival of your planting to, you know, sort of cut back, prevent them from flowering and really focus, have them focus energy on, on building roots and then being able to overpower whatever other seeds might still be mixed in, you know, from those plants that you either smothered or herbicide to get rid of. Yeah, and they, you know, they honestly do that naturally as well. Like they, most prairie plants will spend their whole first year really focused on root growth. That's why a lot of our job, um, particularly come like midsummer, is managing people's expectations and like promising them that like it will get better. <laughs> like because first year plantings can look so unimpressive, and that people will be like, it didn't work, nothing grew. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they're out there. I promise you, they're out there. It's like, you just gotta wait. Like they're hard to identify. They're just little seedlings. They're focusing on root development. Um, you know, it can take it can take multiple years before they'll really like show up and flower and be impressive. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So let's see. I guess that's the that's the basic process. Um, and then, like I said, so let, wait, 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 wait. Let's let's sum it up. Like we're gonna. So we're going to get rid of what exists there already. It's probably invasive. Uh-huh. Um, and that's going to take potentially, what, a season? At least a full growing season. Recommend. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can, in certain situations, you can get away with less. If it's a, if it's a manicured lawn where, like, you, it's been treated with herbicides year after year and nothing's been grown there but, you know, Kentucky bluegrass or whatever, um, you could probably get away with just like hitting it with herbicide a couple times at the end of the year or something, or just taking a sod cutter to it and, and just like 
um, cutting away that top inch or two of, of, of sod. Um, and that, that can go pretty quick, but otherwise it's probably going to take at least a full growing season of prep work. Okay. So a full growing season. And then, um, are we, are your direct sowing seeds? Direct right after so, that? Yep. Yep. Um, without any sort of scarification? Correct. Yeah. Um, so you don't necessarily, you don't, especially if you're yeah doing a dormant season planting, you don't really want to do any scarification or stratification of the seed. You just want to get it out there in the, in the fall and let nature do the, do the work. Okay. And then, um, during the growing season, I'm mowing, uh, a couple times it's a season or just once in that next growing season to four to eight inches? A, a, a couple times. Probably, it, you know, how many is going to depend on the weather and how how fast yeah, things are growing. True. But so I I would say it's probably going to be at least three times um, okay. that you'll mow. And some people recommend like doing progressively higher, like the first time you mow, mow it at six inches and then the second time eight inches and then the next time 10 inches. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can do that, that's, that's great. And then, so what happens, so we got through the first two seasons, and now we're in mm-hmm. season three. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the long-term maintenance of that space look like? Well, in a in a prairie setting, um, basically, you're going to want to either mow or burn. Um, if not every year, every couple of years. And um, that kind of depends on where you're located and what your capabilities are. If you can burn, that's fantastic. And it's probably going to make things go kind of quick for you and um, great for the plants. But, you know, not everybody has the capability to do a controlled burn where they live. Um, So the other option would be to mow. um, And that's another way, like I would mow it, every couple of years in the, in the spring and maybe you'll want to like sort of every so often bag up the, like rake up or bag up the debris um, that, that you just mowed to kind of basically serve as like an alternative to burning, which would, which would just basically just like clear out all that. So all that uh, thatch. Um, right. Yeah. So, um, Burning, if if you got a great prairie that's looking good, a lot of native like your native species are well established. Um, I would say burn every three years or so would be good. That's kind of the the basic recommendation. Um, there are scenarios, I guess, once we get into start starting to talk about large and small plantings and and things like that. On large plantings, I would, you know sometimes you you're going to want to be burning every year to at the beginning of the process until to get that prairie established. Right. Yeah, let's um let's talk about fire maintenance at the end. Okay. Um I think we got a little derailed in the sure. you were I think you were talking and then I, I sort of derailed the conversation. <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay. So, um, 
Yeah, that's basically, so we went through it, um, the prep, planning, prepping, sewing, first year maintenance, and then, yeah, we kind of got off into fire when we got into the long-term maintenance. But um, so to talk about a little about how the process might differ if you're in a, in a very small space, a backyard setting, um, you've got some, you've got some more options on how to do things if you're in a backyard, if you're in a small garden setting, a backyard setting. And like that starts with the planning process, really the big, one of the big decisions you'll have to make in, in a yard situation is if you want to start from seed or from live plants. Um, so live plants, obviously are going to, it's going to be more expensive to start from plugs. Um, but you'll, you'll see flowers quicker. You'll have results quicker. Um, and you can be more intentional about where you plant things. Um, so you can, have a little design if you want Gr plant things in groups and drifts so that's pretty popular in like the landscape design crowd um, um but if yeah if you if you go from seed um there are sort of there are other methods that that some people will use too like um one sort of popular one that people are doing recently is like laying down four or five inches of sand over top of their soil. So normally, normally we don't recommend like any sort of soil modifications just because uh, it's easier if you just work, choose plants for the soil that you have. Um, right. And native plants aren't, aren't fussy about soil really. Like they, they grow in poor soils. They're adapted to poor soils. They, they don't really like a lot of fertilizer, a lot of soil amendments. Um, some of them won't do very well if you add a lot of compost or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but one planting method that people are having success with is laying down sand. And <laughs> that's essentially like a mulch. So it, it, in, instead of worrying about the weed seed bank, you basically bury it under sand. And and you sell your seeds right on top of that. Um, and the results are, are pretty impressive. The one thing I, I guess I don't know and I'd be curious to know is like, are all, are like say you throw down a seed mix on top of that sand, are all the species showing up or are there certain things that won't so show up, um, you know, won't germinate well in that sand? Um, it's curious, I guess, the one thing, the, the issues that you might run into with that method is that, you know, that sand is going to dry out faster. So if you have a dry spring, you might have trouble getting stuff to germinate. You might want to have some sort of irrigation system set up um, on a timer to keep things moist or, or um, you know, spread some clean straw over the seed to keep it a little more moist. Um, yeah, where did you yeah, so, where did you hear about this? Is this just like a like a, a trend or something? something? Yeah, customers will bring it to our attention. You know, it's a you always get customers who call who have like their like this particular landscape designer that they really admire <laughs> and they follow, and so they'll they'll tell you about how that how that person does things, which can be different from sort of how we're accustomed to doing things. But that's, yeah, so that's something that people are using and we've actually experimented with it a little bit ourselves and, and had decent success, like getting things huh. to grow. Interesting. Cool. So, yeah, in a, so in a small site, um, you, you, I guess you have more of an opportunity to think about things like, well, should I cover this? Like you can cover the seeds in straw, like, 
Well, that's a common thing we'll get is like people talk about, you know, putting some sort of erosion fabric down or, or something, um, putting a layer of clean straw over the seeds. Um, you got to be careful about what you put over. Um, you know, there, there is some benefits, um, both in terms of preventing erosion as well as like keeping the seed moist and helping germinate. Um, but a lot of like um, sort of t typical erosion blankets that you'll see were really intended for for like grass plantings and they won't actually allow the broadleaf uh, seedlings to poke through and you'll smother, mm. you'll smother a lot of your plants. Um, but, you know, a thin layer of clean straw is good as long as you make sure that it doesn't have weed seed in it um, and that can help. Um, really like one of the go-to like erosion control fabrics that we would recommend if you have an erosion control or erosion prone site is um, called geojute fabric and particularly like it's called like anti-wash geojute and it's got a really wide weave to it it's um, like a wood fiber mesh product that um, will prevent erosion but it'll allow your your seeds to pop right through hmm. that sounds cool yeah um yeah so i think yeah i would say those are kind of the the major um things you can consider when when doing a small scale operation so, um so rob do you think that there's like a a threshold um you know a threshold size that's like valuable for you know i'm thinking of somebody in a city and you know doing the native planting in their backyard like what value does that hold versus the potential of having all the neighbors with one even though they're you know divided by a fence maybe or something um, no I, I i really don't think there's a there's like a threshold for in order to have value, like I think even just gardening with a few native plants is great if that's what you got room for. Like that still provides, you know, something for the the local pollinators and it still sort of helps maybe sort of provide a little stepping stone in a in a broader fabric of, of uh habitat that maybe you're not really seeing from your neighbors but um in the broader landscape it might provide some linkages. Yeah. And you might influence your neighbors to yeah, put it. They might be like, wow, that looks awesome. Like, I want one of those. And you're like, well, you can just plant some native plants. <laughs> just make Absolutely. sure they're the native ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, starts starts conversations for sure. Yeah. Why is your whole backyard covered in sand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would certainly start a conversation. And that's, yeah, we... uh and speaking of that, um, we do, we carry pretty popular signs that, uh, you know, say like prairie planting in progress or like these are native plants. Don't, don't spray or mow it or like pardon the mess and those kind of signs. And it's just like part of it is like it takes, it takes a couple of years for these things to get established. So convincing your neighbors that you're not insane uh, sometimes takes a little effort. Um, and then, so, you know, just maybe it was four, maybe it was like 10 years ago. I remember there was like this 
movement to gorilla plants. Mm. You know, and that that's mm-hmm. what I what I think of when I see like a uh, a vacant lot in a city is that you know that's such a good spot to have something like that, like a wildflower yeah. garden, um, right. and you know I think I think overall that's a good idea. Um, Mm -hmm. as long as the plants that we're putting in those things are native plants. Um, but those, you know, occupying those spaces, if they're around you, you know, there's nothing illegal about planting native seeds in a vacant lot. And so (laughs) that, that should be something that we should be encouraging is like revegetating these places that, you know, have nothing on them. So we get questions sometimes about seed bombs. I don't know if you're familiar with seed bombs. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I was talking about, seed bombs. Yeah, yeah, and just like a little clay ball full of native plant seeds. And actually, if you type seed bombs into the search on our website, uh, you'll get a list of plants that we recommend uh, for cool. seed bombs, which is essentially just like things that'll that'll grow from seed without much effort or thought put into planting them. That's great. So you're teaching people how to make seed bombs. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, we'll help. We'll help you if you if you have a good <laughs> question about them. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess maybe we'll talk a little bit about if you got a if you've got a very large planting, some of the challenges or thought that might go into that. Like say, say you've got. 20 acres or 40 acres that you want to turn into prairie. Um, that's obviously going to come with its own challenges. And I think f- for one, I mean, seed is expensive. And so trying to plant all that out at once is going to be tough. Um, one option that I, so I did prairie restoration for, for a couple of years and sort of the method that was most common, um, so we, I, I was just like working for a small company and um, we just kind of like try to do things, keep things cost effective and sort of like one of the most common methods that we would use is um, rather than, you know, killing off an entire 20 acres at once and sowing seed is basically when you've got like a situation like an old farm field that's kind of just old pasture land, it's cool season grasses, um, you can you can go through a process of sort of like seeding when you can and just burning every spring um and that burning will essentially um knock the cool season grasses back because they you know they come up so they start to come up so early in the spring that um when you burn it'll 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 um kind of damage the those new shoots and and sort of tip the favor the tip the sort of competitive competitive balance in favor of right in favor of those native prairie plants that are more fire adapted um so that's that's one option when you're um doing a large scale planting there also i guess in the planting itself in the the planting phase um you know so far we've just talked about broadcasting you know by hand which is a really effective and easy way and, and whenever possible, I would, I would recommend just broadcasting with your hands. Um, 
using so when you when you're broadcasting with your hands on say a larger site or a medium sized site um using a filler material is really important um like mm. a sawdust or sand or a peat peat moss um potting soil and the 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 point of that is basically just to bulk up the volume of your seed mix so that you don't run out too early because when you look when when you look at the like the the amount of seed that you're expected to you know use to cover a whole you know this whole you know three acre site or whatever it looks like ridiculously small even though you, <laughs> even though you actually have like a really like impressive seeding right you know you could be at you know 140 seeds per square foot which is you know really good um, but it it it's hard to make that seed last so using a using a filler material is really important um, and um, we like we sell rice hulls which is just like you know the ch the shaft of a, a yeah. grain of rice um we sell those that you can use as filler but most people are able to like locate something like sawdust from a local sawmill or something like that um you know not have, not have to pay for it yeah um, but that's good advice yeah yeah um but say it's a, a really large site and, and hand broadcasting seems infeasible. Um, there are native seed drills out there that, um, you know, be pulled behind a, a tractor or something like that. And um, those are generally sort of, you have like, not just any seed drill will work. You'll want one that's sort of designed for native mixes that have um, sort of large seed, small seed and fluffy seed um, boxes um and so like it can take some that those kind of take some tinkering and some practice you might want to like consult with somebody, with somebody who's used one a lot before before you just go out there and i don't know uh, if you locate one you'll, you'll want to talk with someone who knows what they're doing and how to use it yeah that sounds um, like a pretty specialized thing i don't yeah <laughs> yeah gets, i don't know it gets a little about... complicated yeah I, I don't either to be honest i'm not the one you want to talk to <laughs> Um, I can maybe point you to somebody who knows more than I do, but um, yeah, so things get things can get complicated um, when you're trying to sow a, a, a large, large site. Um, but um, the, the general process remains the same, you know. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good overview of what we wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, let's touch on the fire management aspect of prairie maintenance meadow maintenance we have you know in new england we have a it's probably the same where you are it's probably actually better where you are but here historically we had you know um an exemption an agricultural exemption that you could get from the uh you know burn warden that said, you know, I'm going to burn my field in the spring. And it was a commonplace thing up until fairly recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even looking at it from like a business perspective, there's not, there's no one around here doing that as a, you know, as a service. And so, you know, even for habitat management, up until recently there there was a company that was doing it, but it was one company um, you know in all of New England 
And there's plenty of different, you know, fire adapted habitats here that, you know, this practice could be beneficial for. So I'm wondering just like, you know, what is the level of, and, and we know that fire is big right now because of the, the stuff that's been happening out West. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the suppression of fire over a long period of time, which is, you know, the fear that fire was going to burn something down, which sort of like was, right. <laughs> was this feedback loop that led to it exactly. actually happening. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't, out there is that is fire management, a pretty uh, well-received practice and, is it commonplace for people to do that? Do you guys have true wildfires that break out? Um, and then what is the, you know, what do you see when you're, when you're doing sort of um, prairie restoration after fires or maybe just some species that you see coming back frequently or the plants that are really like keyed into that particular um ecology hmm. um yeah so hmm, a lot a lot of questions there to unpack um so yeah we we basically in in wisconsin where most of my so i mean prairie moon is in minnesota but most of my restoration experience comes in wisconsin so that's what i'll talk about um it it is fairly common um, and well-known, um, like burning as a landscape management practice in the in the very southern reaches of the state. And actually, so like the, the rules about burning, um, you know, set by the Wisconsin DNR um, change dramatically depending on what like DNR management zone you're in. And so like in the very southern part of the state where but like not only were prairies more prevalent, but also like burning as like a part of agricultural land management uh, was much more common. Um, there are hardly any restrictions like you, anybody can burn at any time. You basically like you give a courtesy call to the fire department to say, right. Hey, I'm burning. So like, don't, you don't, don't worry about the smoke. <laughs> um, and then, and then you just go ahead and burn. Um, but then I'm in, other places like then like you move a little bit north and you need to get a permit um, in order to conduct any prescribed burn um, and you don't see them as often. Um, some people might, you know, question it or like have never seen it before and they they get confused and they call the fire department when they see the smoke. Um, so it just depends where you are in the state. Um, but there, you know, there are more and more people doing it. Um, we, perhaps not enough and then maybe not even keeping pace with demand. Um, you know, when I was doing it, we would, we would definitely get more calls for people asking us to burn their property than we could do in a season by far. Um, so it's growing and, and there are more and more people doing it. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, and then let's see, trying to hit all your questions. So like, as far as like, do, are there plants that like you really see respond just particularly well to fire? Um, I, 
in terms of like individual plants, I guess I don't have enough like on 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 the on the ground experience to say that like I don't have enough years under my belt um, of doing it to say like oh man I noticed like you'll you will um, not burn for for hour, ever and you won't see that plant and then you'll burn and it pops up um, yeah, yeah. but at least in terms of of native plants but in general I know that's a that it's true in certain things we'll take advantage of of those of that burn cycle in fact like um some some nuisance invasive species will um mm -hmm. like uh sweet clover um sweet clover is a, a biennial plant that um i know we would see like there would be a site that like you go a couple years without burning and like you start, the sweet clover starts to disappear and you think like holy cow you know, like I know we've been treating the sweet clover, we've been cutting the sweet clover, but I didn't think we've been doing like I didn't think it would go away so quickly. But then you realize that it just was like laying dormant under that thatch, and then you do a burn, and it gets that the the light levels increase, and it it all germinates and it all pops up at once. So I mean, that is definitely a, like a cycle that certain plants take advantage of and and depend on is that fire. Um, so yeah, so I guess. And then obviously like the main, the main, you know, the main advantage of fire, the main purpose of fire is to keep woody, woody plants at bay. Right. And so, uh, I mean, in a historic sense, all those prairie full sun plants, tall grass prairie plants really, really depended on fire and, and needed it to exist on the landscape. Um, just, do you know what percentage, you know, of your state either wisconsin or minnesota is forested versus the Ooh, um that's a good question i don't um so wisconsin interestingly i've heard once that it's like it actually has like the highest percentage of forested land um Ooh, but... i think i think vermont right might rise with you <laughs> what yeah. we're like oh, we were in the 80s for a while in the so okay, so that maybe was in like the it, I, I should I should qualify that that I think that might have been in the Midwest, um, but it so northern Wisconsin is is in a large part forested and um, in part that is actually you know northern Wisconsin wasn't really known as like being part of the the prairie um, you know the prairie peninsula the prairie like a prairie region is more known for being forested but it, um, even that what you know did uh, get a lot of uh, was managed with fire by um, you know by indigenous people and and a lot of it was a lot more of it was open open land and sort of like these you know pine barrens or or um, sort of like open um, prairie before you know fire suppression kicked in but um, you know now a lot of a lot of northern Wisconsin doesn't have great agricultural soils, so now it's all forest. Um, but southern Wisconsin, um, it was, it, you know, it, there was a lot of prairie, but it actually was historically more, even more so oak, oak savanna and oak woodland, um, which are also, you know, fire dependent ecosystems, um, just with some, with some tree canopy over top. So the website's prairiebrew.com. Yep. If you have uh, seed questions, 
native plants you're looking for you guys do you guys do mail order for seed and is potted right, plant yeah. local only no we are entirely mail order um we ship seed and live plants across the continental u.s although and uh we don't ship live plants to california because of state regulations we um so only seed to california and only seed to Canada. So we, we do sell seed to Canada as well, but no live plants. Um, just because it would take too long for live plants to get through customs, they don't die. Um, but yeah, so we are entirely mail order. Uh, our website is <laughs> extremely helpful and it was a resource to me long before I, I worked at Prairie Moon just in the native plant world. Um, so. Even if you're not, if you don't, if you're not looking to purchase seed or plants, um, I would definitely recommend checking out our, our website as a resource. It's incredible. Um, the filter function allows you to sort of, um, you know, see what what plants are are native and, and suited to your to your state and your climate. And um, it's got, you know, we've got over 700 species of, of native plants on on our site. Nice for yeah, not only for for prairies but for um, for woodlands as well. Greetings and salutations. Are you a Heather? No, I'm a Veronica. 